This is Coda Radio, episode 380 for September 21st, 2020. friends and welcome to Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and the world of technology. This episode is brought to you by a cloud guru, the leader in hands-on training. The only way to really learn and lock in a new skill is by doing. That's why ACG provides hands-on labs, cloud Linux servers, and much more. Get your hands cloudy at a cloudguru.com. My name is Chris, and joining me every single week is our man, Stationed in Florida, the developer from down under, it is Mr. Dominic. How's it going down there, Mr. Dominic? Top of the morning to you. Top of the morning to you. Top of the afternoon to you, sir. Top of the afternoon. Yeah, we we have a time zone difference, and you'd think three hours is not really a big deal, but like that's an entire different phase of your day. You know, you're like you're going into the evening. I haven't even had lunch yet. Yes. Yeah. You know? Oh wow. Yeah. It's just weird how, but yet you think three hours. That's no big deal. And over here on the West Coast, I can say it it does feel like a good portion of the entire country just runs off of East Coast time. <laughs> I feel like every meeting I set up, I actually go into that email exchange just knowing that they're on the East Coast and just go with East Coast time. <laughs> it's like it plagues us over on the West Coast. <laughs> <laughs> so how has uh, things been since we gathered together? Good, good. Yeah. You know, just coding. Sleeping. Coding, sleeping. Good. Are you sleeping? Yeah. Are you getting your sleep? I sleep a lot now. Are you drinking your water? I have my water today. I have coffee. <laughs> oh, well, now you know that can dehydrate you, so I want you to drink your water. <laughs> this is like a uh, physical, physical. what do they call that? Physical uh, therapy session, right? You got to stretch. You got to stretch every morning, do your yoga. Yeah. Right. I call it Chris Plus Fitness, and it's nine ninety nine a month, and I just check in with you once a week. <laughs> I hope I get some really crappy TV shows with it. Uh, you just get this voice call, and uh, because I'm a cheapskate, I just lump it in with our show, but I do charge you for it, so <laughs> good for me. That sounds oddly familiar. I'm just trying to bring up my services revenue. You understand. <laughs> well, you do get a better multiple on your stock price for services revenue. That's for sure, and and it seems like Wall Street loves it. Just like the audiences loved our feedback forum this week. We got some great feedback, and Mike and I love this. We'd love to have a problem where some weeks the entire show is feedback, because it not only gives us a signal of what the audience is interested in, which is rewarding for us, but it also often leads to like conversations that we never even conceived before we sat down to record. So please do go to coder.show slash contact, or you can just email. Yeah, I think it's just coder at jupiterbroadcasting.com. The safest bet is to use the contact form because then it goes to all the right places. Uh, there's also the Twitter, which is how Ito Floof. <laughs> Ito Fofilifu, uh, Ito Fofilifu, Ito Fofilifu, uh, boy, this is Ito Fofilifu, <laughs> I don't know on that one, but he says, uh, hey guys, will Coda Radio bring back the soundboard? Last episode I heard, I get it out of here, and a business mentioned, but they weren't played in the show. I don't believe you. Now, I don't know about that. I we're, Whenever we talk about business, we often use the soundboard. Um, but, you know, we don't want it to be inappropriate because then it sort of dominates the show the entire time. And like we always say, you don't want to over dominate the show. Wes was right. Wes was right. You don't want it to do that. So it's sparingly. You know, we don't we don't want it to be a morning DJ drive, but it, it is there. Get 
out of here. That was just an amazing pastiche of uh, me being a jackass. <laughs> Except you missed the he's a jackass one. Yeah, oh, right. We do have that, don't we? we I don't even know if I... I know I have this one. He's a jackass. But I don't know if I kept the other one for some reason. There's a couple we've retired over the years. You know, like, we we retired the RMS clips, too. It just didn't seem like it was, you know, hip anymore to really be playing those. And so, yeah, it's, there has been some that come and go. The soundboard is a living beast. That is for sure. So we continue on with the feedback. Kevin writes in about OpenSUSE. And I, I don't know, maybe we touched on a nerve here. Um, he writes, Mike, <laughs> I don't know if I can actually read what he says there. But let's just say he implies that uh, you are familiar with uh, many ladies and men and gentlemen, and that uh, while Red Hat is a 1,000-pound gorilla, Seuss, in Kevin's opinion, is a solid number two in revenue, 1,500 employees, and profitable. Why? SAP certifies their ERP on Seuss and on Windows. So thousands of SAP deployments run Seuss on-premises and in cloud. There's a reason the former SAP ops manager runs Seuss as a CEO. And once an enterprise has a little Seuss managed by a Seuss manager uh, or maybe some salt, enterprises figure out how they can manage their Ubuntu and Red Hat sprawl just as nicely as they manage Seuss. They essentially copied Ubuntu now with free leap code and paid support. You know, Ubuntu is essentially copying Seuss. And finally, they have a very nice container play with the rancher acquisition that's integrating with Seuss's existing container sets right now. SUSE is relevant. They are very open. They contribute lots of real code, and they do innovate. They're not going away. Ubuntu may have a significant market share, but it's at the cost of revenue. Again, in Kevin's opinion, they continue to try and figure out how to make real money. They obviously haven't yet, or Shuttleworth would have flipped it long before now. So, uh, <clears throat> Mike, I think we touched on a nerve with OpenSUSE. I disagree with everything in this email so i'll wait to go because i don't want to dominate the response but what are your thoughts when you saw this did it give you some perspective on the market that susa serves so i actually just had a conversation with uh, uh someone from the susa manager project over at Su's. susa it is not called Su's, as i was corrected <laughs> i actually have a customer using it right now susa enterprise. enterprise i'm gonna do that every time because i can't help myself and yeah i have not seen it like one i do nothing with SAP, so maybe it is huge in SAP. But it does have market share, but only in like super. It's like Germany and regulated market, regulated verticals, right? Yeah. You need to have that contract to satisfy. There's a bunch of uh, like government regulations. Um, I don't know. It's definitely a spicy email. I mean, he makes a point. Susa, Susa <laughs> and Gano, man, it's killing me. <laughs> Welcome to my world. Yeah, it's, it's definitely got some market share. I, you know, I don't know that, like, I'm interested in getting into a distro war because, you know, Linux is like 1% of the desktop market, right? So let's not kill yeah, ourselves here. Right. And I understand we're primarily talking about servers. But yeah, if it works, you know, I, I still wouldn't pick it voluntarily. I'm sorry, but... Yeah, I've always kind of held back on my criticism because I respect the engineers at SUSE and the developers who contribute to it and the community. And I think they have a lot of innovative ideas. I think they've been at the forefront of a lot of simplification via Yast. And I applaud them for a lot of the things they've done that when I use SUSE or OpenSUSE, I, I feel like these are unique and they're special. And I always come across something like, oh, these clever, clever bastards. But like yourself, 
I don't like using it. And I have used it in production, the enterprise version, the supported version. And I had numerous issues with it. What I find happens here from people who are big into the open side of things is they kind of delude themselves a little bit and kind of hand wave away things that really matter. 1,500 employees and profitable, yeah, but not so profitable that they haven't been sold half a dozen times in just as many years. And justifying its relevancy because it's required to, to use SAP doesn't really speak to the same level of engagement that other distributions get because people are voluntarily installing them and choosing to run them. I grant you that you can manage a SUSE or OpenSUSE or whatever uh, with the same kind of tools you could manage other Linux boxes, but the SUSE boxes will always be the exception because they do things just a little bit differently, a little differently like Slackware did them. And they kind of branched off from a different technology point in Linux history and have kept some of that uniqueness that, in my opinion, when you have two dominant players, Ubuntu and Red Hat, it makes SUSE the oddball out. Now, true, they've made a recent play towards containers. He mentions the Rancher acquisition. I would argue 10 years too late. I would argue at minimum five years too late. Spicy. Yeah, it is. And they're so proud of it. That's the worst thing about it is God forbid you say anything about it, because this in particular is quite the area of pride for them. Because again, they really have something clever and they have something unique and special, just like they do in the OpenSUSE build service, just like they do in just the presentation of the distribution. I mean, I used to buy every single version of SUSE in the box with the DVD set and the manuals just to support the project. Probably, you know, a $90 box set. I really don't have any animosity, but the reality is the reality. And the market backs me up on this opinion. And the fact of the matter is, their container play was too late. It's too late. The industry has built its own solutions now. And then at the very end here, Kevin, and I'm not trying to come at you, but I'm just trying to point out some of the fallacies I see in your argument. He says Ubuntu has a significant market share, but it's at the cost of revenue. Well, show me where you can see that. Because as far as I remember, Canonical is a private company, and the disclosure they do make is once a year, and that disclosure seems to indicate they're making millions of dollars, and I mean like 30s of millions of dollars, off of Ubuntu support. They're making quite a bit of money. So I'm not quite sure where you're saying it's at the cost of revenue. They seem to be in a really sweet spot. And now they've just expanded their OEM deals for the desktop version so to include HP and Lenovo. So now they have Dell, HP, and Lenovo as first-party OEMs who are paying them a per-sale license fee. So now they've also made the desktop profitable. I, so I just don't really track where Kevin's coming out here, but this is generally the reality I see painted by most SUSE advocates. And if this world clicks for them, I say more power to him because it is something that's unique. It does have a lot of great solutions. It has a brilliant community and a brilliant development team behind it. And it's a very high quality distribution. Just not for me. Just not doesn't fit the reality that I see in the marketplace. And I think the wider market statistics bear that out. But have at it. That's my opinion. You you are welcome to respond at coder.show slash contact. Hot take, Mike. Hot take. Achoo. Spicy. Yeah. Spicy. So Laius writes in. So uh, another feedback. And this one's about Flask. He says, hi, Mike and Chris. Super happy the show is, is back. It's always been a favorite JB show, and I'm happy for the opportunity to support the show via membership, too. Oh, thanks for joining the Q8 team. So he goes on to say, Mike recently started talking about Python and Flask. When COVID hit us, it marked my journey into Python and Flask, and I have been learning and doing it since March of this year. 
Interesting. I wonder if that's been true for anyone else. He goes on to say, I was hoping Mike could talk a little bit about his work with Flask. Any tips, any pitfalls, maybe some use cases, any thoughts or blueprints? Does he use them or not? I also wanted to share a link to Miguel Ginsburg's blog. I find it really good. It mainly focuses on Flask, and uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. It says, thanks for coming back. We missed you. So any further thoughts on Flask? Oh, uh, yeah. So uh, right off the bat, yes, I do use blueprints and I like them a lot. What is that exactly? Is that uh... so instead of having like at rest requests or whatever it is and whatever the, the stupid annotation is in Flask, you can actually create a blueprint file that kind of auto magically gives you basic components or. Well, it's like one file where all the requests for a given model can be. That's a super like all the, all the API endpoints, right? That's a super simplified explanation. OK, but. The way I use it is it's a way to organize your code where, you know, you just add the blueprint into your external JSON API and that's where everything is. Huh. Blueprints can greatly simplify how large applications work and provide central means for Flask extensions to register operations on applications. Ah, okay. All right. Fancy way to say API calls, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. That's great to know. So uh, you love them. I love them. It's one of those things that you either should go all in on it or not, though, right? Because you you want consistency in your architecture. Mm. General things on Flask, if you haven't yet, check out the PyLand thing from, uh, from VS Code. That is some slick stuff they've got going over there. Well, then, link to that in the show notes, too. Coder.show slash 380, assuming we remember to do it. Thanks for writing that in. And uh, now I just learned a little something. I'm over here. On, <laughs> I'm over on the website reading about uh, blueprints now. And I didn't even know I'd be getting into that. That's what I was talking about when we started the feedback segment. Uh, is like you get into stuff you didn't even know you'd be talking about. TJ writes in to the program and follows up on the topics of developers getting paid for open source work. He writes, in episode 378, you received a listener message about open source developers not getting paid. Well... There was an interesting proposal about dealing with that by Mr. Big Shot Bruce Perens at TebConf 2020. Uh, and he links to the WebM file, which we will pass along to the show notes. The presentation is 44 minutes long, and he does get into the issue of creating coherent licenses. He talks about maybe a contract law where users would have use case consent that has been given to them by developers. I mean, it's it's deep. It goes really deep. And, I mean, we could probably do an entire show on it if we wanted to. So I will put the link to the video. And then if we get people that seem to be into it, maybe we make a segment out of it. But otherwise, we'll leave it as homework. Does that seem fair? Yeah, it sounds good to me. Decision has been made. All right. You know what? We're cranking through this. I'm proud of us. So we have one last feedback to get to, and this is great. It's from David C., also welcoming us back. And he says, I'm writing in to follow up on something I tweeted at you both regarding the live audio stream. So basically, I've been listening for quite a long time, and I've been around during most of the live shows whenever I can make time. I am currently in the enthusiast space, but I'm moving myself little by little towards game development. I've been enjoying the JB shows for years, and Coda Radio specifically as far back as episode 30. <laughs> I tend to work on projects catching up whenever the backlog uh, gets uh, accumulated, and of course, during everyday life. All of this is to say I was a frequenter, of the JB Live FM audio stream provided on the site. But he finds himself to be very distractible, and if he leaves it in the browser, he ends up forgetting about it and just closes the browser. Something standalone to keep myself accountable and off Twitter is what I was thinking. That way I don't procrastinate. 
Needless to say, I was excited and I started a project. I recently dusted it off again and it's on my GitHub page, JB Live Radio. Hmm. It's super simple and it has some issues typically. I'm not typically a JavaScript framework user, so forgive me, it's a bit rough, but I'd love someone to overlook the current state of the project on my GitHub. I know there's unfinished stuff and some of the code might not be perfect, but I'd love some help. The idea is to create a simple-to-use app to play the live stream. Unfortunately, due to some day job stuff, I'll be unable to attend live this Monday, but rest assured, I'll catch up quickly. Anyways, I'm super happy you guys are back, and I'm excited to get back to listening. Thanks, David. I love it when people build these apps around our stuff. It's just super cool to see people taking the time to do that. And I feel like we could be doing more with the audio stream, because it's it's a high-quality audio stream. We have... Uh, we've putting some effort. Is that the way to say? I've put some effort. We have, Wes and I, put effort into making sure it sounds really good and all that kind of stuff. So we should be doing more with it. So an app around that's a great idea, I feel like. Yeah. I mean, especially if you don't want to be like in browser tabs while you're listening. I think that's uh, honestly a great idea, a standalone app to to get the live stream. And less resources too. Right. Which, which is what I think he's talking about, the live stream, right? Not the like... Yeah. The JB Live FM is... It's either like the reruns or it, when we are live streaming, it takes over and it's, it's a it's a live stream. And what's nice about that is generally we try to strike the balance of low enough bit rate that you could probably stream it on your phone in the car, but high enough that it still sounds really good, um, like on desktop speakers. So that's kind of where we try. And that's a hard balance. And we do some processing to make that possible. And so that's where we came up with the idea. And you just put jblive.fm in and... If it's like VLC or your web browser will support it now, it just starts playing. And it's either live or reruns. It's not really a clear delineation, but it's kind of obvious because the reruns are all really old. <laughs> so, yeah, you'll probably figure it out. <laughs> yeah, no, this is a great idea. I mean, I'll definitely check it out. And if uh, we'll have the link in the show notes if anybody wants to see. It is a, so it's an, I'm looking at it now. It's Electron. You can build it for Mac, Windows, and Linux great yeah um yeah i'll probably check this out because you know what it, it's one of those things that just having in your uh toolbar would be nice yeah yep and if you have a uh icecast streaming client of choice put in jblive.fm and it will redirect you to the live stream url and it'll just play in your player of choice linode.com slash coder Go there and receive a $100 credit towards a new account for 60 days. Linode solves the problem of servers. It solves the problem of infrastructure. You simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and robust set of tools built around that. And they're also solving the price problem because Linode is 30 to 50% less than major cloud providers like AWS. We use Linode here at Jupyter Broadcasting for our backend infrastructure more and more all the time. The pricing structure is really simple. You can spin up the machine that matches exactly our needs. Sometimes, like when I'm doing an SSH tunnel server that just does a jump host for me, well, that's like a $5 a month rig, and that is great. But sometimes we're doing things like processing show files, and we need a dedicated CPU. They have that as well. But beyond the technology, as a small business owner, I feel comfortable relying on Linode for my critical infrastructure, the stuff that makes my business possible. And the reason for that is Linode's been around for essentially as long as user mode Linux has been around. They're not some fly-by-night company that got a bunch of VC funding and has an idea to take on AWS. No, they've been around since nearly the beginning of this being possible. A young developer and technologist, Christopher Acker, saw an opportunity to do something more than just host another application, which is 
kind of what people were really seeing user mode Linux for. That was the Salesforce model. But he saw a way of taking cloud computing and making it less complicated, less expensive, and maybe even most importantly, more accessible to every developer, regardless of where they're located or really what their resources are or who they work for. That's a massive concept. He helped pioneer cloud computing and he developed a company to bring that to developers. And that company's Linode. They've been in this for a long time. And you fast forward to today and nearly two decades later, Linode is the largest independent open cloud provider in the world with 11 global data centers serving over 800,000 customers. And I am personally one of them. And so is my business. And I couldn't be happier about it. And I couldn't be happier to recommend that you go to linode.com slash coder and receive a $100 60-day credit towards your new account and try it out. I think you'll be really impressed. That's linode.com slash coder. And a big thank you to Linode for sponsoring the Coder Radio program. Have you been following all of this TikTok hoopla? I mean, this is getting crazy now. And I got to be honest with you, as a social network platform, couldn't care less. But as a wider larger ramifications, it seems like a huge deal. Yeah, I think all app developers need the government now regulating and throwing your apps out of the stores, too. That sounds like fun. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? What I find interesting is the threat is essentially the nature of a social network. TikTok has a algorithm that shows people things they like, and they're concerned about somebody or some government influencing that algorithm. Hello? That is the single threat of every social media platform. (laughs) Like, let's be real. This is also the Facebook and Twitter problem, right? It's not unique to TikTok. It's just the government is different for the nation that TikTok's from. (laughs) You have defined the core functionality of all of these apps. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Track, spy you and manipulate you. Right. Get you to buy shit you don't need and like make you depressed and angry. Like that's that's what they do. So did it get banned, though? I guess not uh i think it's not it's not uh because it was supposed to happen um at midnight on september 20th and as we record today it's september 21st now i grant you i'm not following it for the tiktok purposes but the current news as i know is that president trump has commented on as of monday and he says he would not approve a tiktok deal unless ByteDance ceded its control And after that, ByteDance said it would not be doing that. It would retain an 80% stake, which is not ceding control. It's ceding 20% control. Uh, And then ByteDance asserted it will maintain a majority ownership and control over TikTok Global and will not transfer source code or any technology to Oracle and Walmart. But I, I think right now the U.S. has delayed the TikTok ban by a week to give time for all of this to sort out. But it sounds like it's off to a pretty rocky start just on the first day. I mean, I probably incorrectly find it hard to care about TikTok. I got to be honest with you. I know it's incredibly popular. And, you know, this is where two old dudes that don't like to dance uh, on the Internet maybe aren't the best people to talk about this. But you think maybe maybe on the one hand, like, yes, I, I, I kind of can see the argument. But. This all just seems kind of like a circus. Right. And zoom out on the ramifications of this. Look at how hostile app stores are at this point to developers. You can have the platform curator that decides you're not worth featuring. You have the potential for governments to step in and say a fundamental service you rely on is going to be removed. I mean, in this case, 
I'm not so sure, but let's say there were apps that used a TikTok backend or tied in with a TikTok service, much like how we used to have a whole ecosystem of Twitter clients. If you, say back then, were making your living making a Twitter client and some government would come in and just say, nope, no more, all of those developers are wiped out as well. Yeah, and uh, the Twitter client example is perfect because uh, that kind of happened, right? Twitter, yep. Not the government, but Twitter was Twitter. like, yeah, we don't, we don't like this anymore. That's, the, that's the, the other angle, is then there are commercial interests that are hostile that are also going to screw you in the App Store. <laughs> it's, it's really bad now. Yeah. And then you combine that with what seems to be Apple's hostile take, too, in, in terms of trying to get revenue for services, getting a cut on store revenue and sales revenue and subscription revenue, but also just the way they dropped iOS 14 as a bit of a bomb on developers. <laughs> and you're like, here you go. It's done. Now go ship your apps. I mean, I thought it was great, personally. <laughs> yeah, I got, it probably got you some work because clients had to <laughs> scramble. <laughs> That's right. I had to pop open the old iMac and be like, all right, let's do this. Oh, and I picture you sitting there, you've got a tasty beverage, you crack the knuckles, and you just you just say to yourself, Objective C. Well, no, I plug it in, I update Xcode three times. <laughs> of course. Yes. You have to get current, right? Yes, I had to get current. Yeah. And then I, I realized that there's tons of deprecations, and uh, yeah, so legacy code, there's nothing like maintenance contracts. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing the Apple ecosystem's... Uh, Usually pretty good for <laughs> just savagely deprecating things. I'm like, okay, sure. Yep. Because an app should only run for three years, right, guys? That's okay. It's maybe on the fringe or the edge of developer hostile, but it is slightly developer hostile to operate that way. Oh no, it's 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 kidding aside, it's like super bad. Yeah, and what I don't get is they have all these NDAs in place, which by the way, have you really seen any major leaks of these ARM developer kits? Not really. Uh, I've seen a few. I've seen a couple of things, but not like any YouTube video doing a teardown or review or... Oh, they'll sew your pants right off. Right. right. But I, that's my point is developers seem to understand that line. And in, in collective here, there's a lot of them that probably have them. There could be There could be many thousands of units out there. And they all seem to be mostly playing ball. So I just don't understand why Apple doesn't trust the developers a little more. They have NDAs in place. They have mechanisms to pursue them if if they break them. Uh, they seems like they could have given them a heads up. It ruins the surprise, but it, it would be great for for developers. I would argue the most personal and important computer in everybody's life, assuming you're an iOS user. Um, maybe we don't want surprises, right? Like I have a completely different view on this. Like I, if my phone is not working, I'm like out of business right that's horrible true true i i really don't want to be surprised i want more battery life i mean i'll give it just like a side example right uh the folks at panic just made a new app called nova it is a mac native mac only editor and it does not have debugging features which some jackass since he was working on mac decided to spend an hour trying to figure out how to get it to actually do debugging it does not and it's a beautiful app. I, for those who don't know, Panic is like one of the classic like Mac developers. You know, if if you if you were ever into Apple, you you probably know who they are. They're doing like this. You know, it's a hundred bucks, and then like an annual subscription, and you get updates for forever. And then if you stop the subscription, you just get the version you have. Okay, and it works as long as it's compatible with the OS. Yeah, right. But they they immediately got ripped apart by people like on Hacker News coming up with. Well, this editor on the Mac App Store is like $2, or this one's free. And it's like, ugh, guys, you know, and they're kind of defending themselves. And the whole time I'm thinking, like, this is not a editor that I would use because I don't primarily work on Mac anymore. 
even if I did, there are some things I don't like about it. But like, they're just not asking for that much money. And like, if if on the Mac you have a problem getting like a hundred dollars out of people, then the whole indie software space. And this is something I was going to say for the Coderly report, but just kind of preview here. It's in a, in a real bad place. Like you, you and I have commented for years that one of the weird things about moving between Mac and Linux is, you know, you used to look at my dock bar and like all those applications I paid for. Yeah. Right. Whether they were like rogue amoebas audio stuff or even the simplest app that just tweaks maybe the way applications behave or window lays out just even small ones that go up in your toolbar and do one function are five dollars. Right. Um, Magnet. Right. Magnet, which is uh, basically gives you tiling like uh, Pop! OS does. Is like 20 bucks. iStat menu, which gives you stuff that just often comes, like it's an extension for GNOME Shell or it's built into Plasma as a Plasmoid to get CPU info. But it's iStat menu is like 30 bucks. It does a lot. And it's, I guess that's always my disclaimer with these Mac apps is they always seem like they do a lot and they do bring some value and they're usually pretty well designed and functional. But they're a generally equivalents on Linux, like you're saying, are completely free and just in the repo. Yeah, but the, the, I mean, the wider point is Apple actively trained even Mac users to now like not want to pay for stuff. Yeah. And, and just this nonsense now with uh, with Epic. I mean, I, I think Epic's getting a little wacky with themselves, too, like some little too theatrical. Did you see this? Apple went back to the court because they want to go after Unreal Engine anyway. Yeah. Apple has now characterized this as, quote, one of the most egregious acts of sabotage that Apple has experienced with any developer, end quote. They go on to say, this is a direct quote from Apple's filing. Epic started a fire and poured gasoline on it <laughs> and now asked this court for emergency assistance in putting it out, even though Epic can do itself an instant. It can do it itself in an instant by simply returning to the contractual terms that have profitably governed its relationship with Apple for years. <laughs> they go on to say epic is a saboteur not a martyr did they also follow up with, and go get your shine box you know? <laughs> like, i mean really it's like what are you doing yeah you're i know i i mean they're kind of right the, the thing where i think apple does kind of have them dead to rights is they went into that they 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 signed that terms of service oh it's premeditated right and it, this whole thing was like a premeditated you know they had the commercial ready uh, the 1984 spoof right but even google is like aggressively disabling ios 14 features because of youtube revenue yeah so you know the motivation here with apple always seems to be number one does it make apple money number two does it benefit other aspects of apple and number three does it benefit end users and then number four does it benefit developers i think that's their decision tree here right no well and services now right now services like can it get a services revenue is like right up there at number one no <laughs> yeah yeah number one yeah it's and i, I like can i fry some bacon i know it's not unfiltered but i'm i'm hungry i bring bacon with me everywhere i go are you kidding me that seems perfectly rational to me i have to say Ooh, that's got a smoky hint to it what is that yeah yeah it's daily's uh hardwood smoked uh bacon it comes in a huge huge pack 90 percent fat well I, I think i just felt my arteries clogged but anyway <laughs> so i am not saying they're doing this intentionally but i think apple is actually destroying the indie development scene and i i know that's a that's a hottest of hot takes that is a that is a 90 percent fat take up until now the place that if you were a small independent developer you went to to make money 
like selling apps or licensing apps or whatever was was iOS, right? And to a lesser extent, Mac. And I know people are going to email in like Android success stories. That's fine. Apple has basically made that impossible. Like one side effect that I think is getting a little not enough coverage in the uh, I almost said mainstream media. That is not where I wanted to go with this <laughs> in the in the larger tech press is when you break down Apple's revenue. One, the I, the App Store is making them a boat ton of money. Like this whole idea that they're just running it to be nice is nonsense. Also, that money is mostly from like games. Yeah, in app. Your panics, your rogues, your, you know, name other prolific Mac developers are not the one. And they're all outside of the App Store, by the way, the people I mentioned. And most of them, in fact, with Panic in particular, writes about their experiences on iOS and not not so good. So I don't know. Maybe, I mean, again, you'll have to listen to the quarterly report, but maybe there's something here that, you know, when we started this in 2012, it wasn't easy, but it wasn't hard to, like, write an app and make a couple hundred bucks at least. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now it's hard to make a couple hundred cents. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know if I see this move as them trying to consolidate down the market. It also could simply be as they become nearly a $2 trillion company, they have a really hard time conceptualizing the needs of a $100,000, $200,000 revenue company, right? They just can't, they just can't even with that. <laughs> like, it's just so far past where they're at now. That they really only know how to negotiate at these, you know, larger CEO to CEO terms, and and apparently Epic just even the, even a company as large as Epic wasn't big enough to. Um, well, I guess they tried actually. If you look at the emails, it seems like they tried, but it didn't work. I think long term here, you are going to have even if it's non intentional, you're going to have essentially what you're talking about play out. And I think we've been calling this for a while. If you look at this and. These, I think why we keep coming back to this on the show, if you look at the root of it, is this is what we've been foreshadowing for a while, and now we're actually seeing it come to fruition. And the question is, once again, now we find ourselves with the ground shifting underneath us, how do you respond to that? Or actually, maybe put more acutely, how do you survive? Um, that's that's going to be a great question. I mean, I, I think we should – I hate to say keep an eye on it, but I think, one – there is some chance that like the EU slaps Apple and like maybe things go back, but I, I kind of don't think so. I don't think I think the users have been trained that they don't have to pay for stuff. Well, and I think if you're hoping the EU or the U.S. justice system saves you, <laughs> I said the EU for a reason. <laughs> I'm counting on Canada. <laughs> Bring on the Mounties. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Well, yeah. So it's it's fascinating because they just it's so entrenched and it's so public. And it really is going to play out and shift the way software is sold and consumed long term. So it's it has large ramifications. And, and to be fair to like leadership at Apple, they can't really stop, right? Like if they have this leverage to make this money, and Tim Cook didn't do it, that would be a problem for Tim Cook, right? And and, and to be honest, if you read the emails that have been released in their hearts, they really believe it is their platform. It is their users. It is their devices. Right. You're you're just kind of here. Yeah. You're a you're a guest in their home. Yeah. Apple's argument is, quote, when Apple first created the iOS app store, rather than recreating the Internet, Apple opted instead to create a safe and trusted place for its iPhone customers to discover and download apps, confident they will work seamlessly and securely with one tap of a finger. So that's, you know, not saying it's a console, but it's kind of saying it's a console. 
is what they're kind of saying right there. It's it's equiv- It's more of an Xbox than it is a computer. I don't think I don't I don't buy that. I don't think that holds water, but they're gonna try. Especially when they position when they position the iPad as a productivity device and the iPhone as a videography tool. I, I, I'm not buying it's a console, but. Um, that is their positioning in this case. And of course, that's what their lawyers are going to do is they're going to argue the best case they can for Apple. And they're going to use the most extreme and harshest language on both sides. Same with Epic. And we'll be talking about this for eight years. So what other OS could you run, Chris? Yeah, let's talk about let's. okay. let's do the thing that people hate. Uh, But before we go there, (laughs) I just you mentioned it. uh, CoderQA.co. If you want to become a member of this here program, not only do you support the show, but you can get a limited ad free version of the show. And also you do get that coder, coder, quarterly report, coder, quarterly report, <laughs> which uh, I guess we're doing at the end of this month. Um, I think I think we talked about what we're going to do is uh, is we're going to really we're going to record it and then release it and it'll be in the members feed. And the way that will work is I will actually put it in your live feed. So it'll just or in your actual RSS feed. So if you're already subscribed, it will be there, but it will also get uploaded to the members area. So if you just for whatever reason want to be a member and still prefer to just have the main show feed, you can go to the login page. You'll be able to log in and just download that one off coder quarterly report otherwise it'll just show up in your feed if you're subscribed to the limited ad feed so coderqa.co for that now i am slowly and probably in a way that i think would be really annoying to most people beginning to methodically consider and research a linux laptop and the reason why i start now is because i am in no position now to buy a laptop. So it's impossible for me to accidentally stumble across the one I want and buy it today because I literally can't. (laughs) I don't have the funds. I haven't been paid for a couple of months. I mean, it's not happening, right? But if things with the business go right and when it gets close to tax time and I'm, you know, late 2020, maybe early 2021 and I'm looking at things, I think if things line up, I'll probably be in a position, hopefully this would be a milestone, to get a Linux laptop. My previous Linux laptop wasn't mine. It was owned by a cloud guru. And so I want something at some point to be my go-to Linux mobile machine. But I want to measure twice, really, and cut once because I have a couple of requirements. I, I want something, obviously, that easily runs Linux with little to zero modification. But this time around, I'd also like to have a 2K screen. I think I'm done with 1080p, but I don't really want to go to 4K. And... From time to time, I want to play a video game. So I'd like it to have a dedicated GPU, ideally a 14-inch form factor, but I would also consider a 15-inch form factor. When you add all this up, it's tricky. I was looking at different systems, and the one that I obviously went to first was the Bonobo, but I don't think I need that much power, and I don't think I even need that much graphics because I'm not a frequent gamer, and I don't need a 4K screen. I'd like a 2K screen. So then I thought maybe the Oryx Pro, but they have a 1080p panel in their system or a 4K screen. But also, I'm not clear on even what graphics I need at this point. Like, I I feel like maybe it's time to consider a full Ryzen system. Maybe it's time to consider an Intel system. So first on my list is of consider is System76, just because, you know, been a customer for over a decade plus now. And I like supporting them. And also, before I stopped using the ThinkPad, I wound up using Pop! OS on that and found it to be pretty great. So I'm thinking maybe maybe the next one will probably run Pop! OS as well. These are like my current 
requirements, you know? And then now what I do is I start this like slow information absorption process, kind of, kind of like taking in all of the dynamics and possibilities and then kind of whittling it down. And will you remind me, Mike, what your current, uh, daily Linux driver is? Yeah. So I'm on a, right now, actually, I'm on the Lemur Pro from System76. See, that'd be a great option too, but no dedicated GPU, right? And it's a 1080 panel. I could possibly live. I'd prefer 2K though. I'd really like, that's, that's really the sweet spot for me. I'm like that. I, I do prefer 2K. I, so, so again, flame more time. I think 4K on Linux is kind of crap. It's still hit and miss a little bit. It's, yeah. if you got all GTK3 apps or all current Plasma apps, cute, you know, toolkit stuff, not so bad, but like I have, um, I have two pretty essential audio programs I use that I don't even know what toolkit they're using, but it is not high DPI. <laughs> it's like old X11 stuff. So you brought up a GPU. Uh-huh. Yeah. Are we talking like a desktop replacement here or are we talking? I, you know, not really, because I really, I just want to play video games with the kids and they don't have crazy powerful systems. So it just, you know, dad wants to have the best, obviously. And I would like to play s- s- modern games, but for the most part, I'm looking at playing, you know, games from a few years ago now. Hmm. So it doesn't have to be a crazy GPU, just a step above what the Intel gives me. This is where, and I'm not going to do it, but this is where like the MacBook really kind of checks all those boxes except for the Linux part. And the Linux part is just absolutely essential. So it's just a non-starter. But you look at the 16-inch MacBook Pro or something like that, or whatever that come out ARM-wise, they generally have dedicated GPU. They generally have good battery life. They generally have a good screen. They have now a good keyboard. They have a good size to weight ratio. And they check a lot of the boxes. So I can understand why people buy them, but the price is high, A, and B, it's a non-starter without Linux because that's that's the entire point of this machine. I don't really want like XMN in the chat room is recommending external eGPU. Yeah, you know what? That gets weird. I remember when I did that last year. Yeah, I, I, that's what I have been doing, and frankly, that it's not bad if I'm stationary. But because I'm a dope who chooses to live in an RV, I'm mobile all the time, and I'm tearing my setup down constantly. So it's always one more thing I have to move around and set up. But additionally, it's like sometimes the kid and I are just somewhere where we have our laptops, but I didn't bring the eGPU in my bag. I can't really. And it's like, well, I can't play, Dylan. I'm sorry. I don't I don't have a graphics card. <laughs> it's just weird, right? So I want it built in now. So I'm thinking, like, there, there's a couple of viable options, right? Like, System76 has, I think, what was it, the Bonobo you were talking about? Yeah, the Bonobo workstation, they just refreshed that. Mm-hmm. Didn't somebody just partner with Fedora? Yeah, Lenovo has some ThinkPads, like the X1 Carbon, but no GPU there. Oh, they don't have a model with a GPU still? Yeah. There's always the XPS, right? But like, I think no GPU on the XPS, for sure. Right, yeah. Yeah, and I'm not sure if, this, if the 15 is officially supported. The 15-inch XPS might have a GPU. I would love the something that's the size of the lemur or the XPS with a GPU in there. And I know that's just probably not possible with our current technology, but oh man, that'd be the sweet spot. I just want something that has very low bag cost. You know, I toss it in the bag and I can I can feel it, but it's not like 10 pounds. <laughs> I mean, I will say my, my one regret in my lemur is that it doesn't have a GPU. Yeah, for games or for other uses? Just for games, generally. The thing is, Proton's gotten pretty good, and Steam's pretty good, so it's there's a lot of options now. And it's not something I'll do every week, even, but once or twice a month when I want to do it, if I'm going to be spending over $2,000 on a machine, it kind of has to do all the things. That's a big investment for me. How do you feel about NVIDIA? 
I'm st- I'm okay with Nvidia. I know that it's you know Ryzen's all the rage now, and the AMD GPU drivers baked in are are pretty simple. But you know, to be honest with you, I've never really had any problem getting the Nvidia drivers going. I think they've got a long term plan to support Linux, and I think they make some pretty good cards. So I'm not really opposed. I am Ryzen curious though. You're, you're Ryzen curious. Are you going on the Ryzen message boards, you know, <laughs> chatting with some people? Well, I, I've i played around, like, in my workstation upstairs, because I have a desktop. My, You know, I still have Linux machines. I just don't have a Linux laptop. And my Linux desktop upstairs, I put an AMD GPU in it, and it just works great. So XNM in the chat is uh, mentions the new Intel. Yeah, so there's some fancy new Intel chips coming out yeah. with integrated graphics and some kind of hybrid GPU mode. I I don't know, man. I've been told, the you know, that's been the promise every single release is, oh, well, the Intel GPU this generation really saw some improvements. And that's always true, but <laughs> the other stuff isn't standing still either. I mean, here's the thing. If you're looking for, like, my input, you know, I have a dream of an all AMD future, right? Like, if I, if I could get it, basically the machine you described but like Ryzen full stack, I'd be super happy. I don't now I worry about things like battery life with that. We'll see. I mean, I've heard good things about the 4000 series. You know, I was thinking about this over the weekend. I think I was talking to Joe. I, I, I'm not feeling as strongly right now, but over the weekend, I, I, I started to feel concerned about ARM MacBooks and stealing desktop Linux users again. I, you should be. My version of reality is that around the time of Unity and GNOME Shell relaunching, and Plasma 4 to 5, we bled tons and tons of developers to the Mac-Apple ecosystem. And it was right around when OS X started getting good, Mac laptops transitioned to Intel, and the iPhone had just kicked off. Like, all of these kind of convalesced together, and the Linux desktop space was in massive flux. And I watched conferences and just metrics on our own stuff transition from predominantly Linux to MacBooks. And it was a it was a big, big vacuum for a while that just sucked up tons of Linux users. And it seems like with their butterfly keyboard, um, the hit and miss nature of recent Mac OS updates, that some of that had been clawed back. Also, good offerings from Dell and System76 and now Lenovo had made Linux development machines attractive once again, and we were seeing it pick back up again. And I, I think we're seeing a recovery in that user niche for desktop Linux. In my opinion, based on metrics I see across all of our shows, based on emails that come in, based on experience in the past, it's just my opinion. But I now worry that Apple is going to crush it with these ARM CPUs, and they're going to blow the doors off on performance, and they're going to show people real-world workloads that are way faster, that generate less heat, and the battery lasts 15 hours. And oh, by the way, the machine has a new form factor, a new screen technology. It's really kick-ass. And they're going to just suck all those Linux users right back up. I mean, I think you are probably right. If you know, I mean, there's always the chance that they screw it up, but they've been working on this transition forever. Yeah, I mean, if, if you could get a MacBook that is both faster and with like, you know, 50% more battery life than a top-of-the-line XPS, let's say. Yep. Yeah, that's going to bleed people, right? There's also the ecosystem effect of iOS apps being able to run on these machines. So the Home Assistant project, which is one of the fastest-growing open-source projects on GitHub, and it's an amazing project, recently released a Mac version of their iOS app that has been tuned a little bit for the Mac 
and now integrates the Mac into Home Assistant. So it can monitor when your Mac is actively being used versus when the screensaver is on. It can monitor temperature information and feed that back into your Home Assistant automation system. And the reason they were, they were able to flip the switch on that is because of this uh, this ability to take iOS apps and deploy them on the Mac. It's not perfect. It's still in like the alpha beta stage, but they don't have anything like that for Windows or Linux. Yeah, I mean, that's a community problem, though, right? Like, it's open source. Someone could develop a Windows version or... They could. But I guess my point is when you, you can see how developers are already, even in the open source world, it's not deep into the Apple ecosystem that's not deep into every keynote, like just totally drinking the Kool-Aid, even those types of projects are taking advantage of this ecosystem advantage. So you combine the app availability and deployment possibilities with really good performing hardware. I am very concerned. I am very, very concerned about desktop Linux because I think that developer niche is is a key user base for Linux. We'll see where it goes. And I think what's interesting is I'm doing this laptop shopping while this is likely going to drop. The rumor has been that we'll see an ARM MacBook before the end of 2020. So probably before I buy my next machine, we'll see the first one of these drop. Yeah. I mean, I think your fears are probably well-founded, right? It's... You know, it's, it's always the question of, you know, what is the relationship of desktop Linux to the wider Linux ecosystem, right? It's small. <laughs> small is an understatement. Right, right. right. Linux is really a, really about, you know, the back-end technology. Back-end. Sure. Mm-hmm. But it's a passion project for me. No, no, I get it. I'm not trying to convince you not, not to get a Linux laptop. I'm on a Linux laptop right now, though, right? So my point is I, I can't see a lot of, like, web developers – given the choice, unless they have just like a, it's like their passion or they like love Linux as a hobby, turning down 20 hour battery life. Yeah. And great performance and all of that. I mean, I gotta be honest, I would be very tempted by that, Mm -hmm. you know, when COVID is over and I have to travel around again all the time. And if they keep these speakers top of the line, like they are in the MacBook 16, and they keep the microphones top of the line, like they are in the MacBook 16. And if they improve the camera quality by just putting one of their even low end iPhone front facing cameras now, they would have a very compelling work machine, especially for people that are doing the work from home and have to be on Zoom calls all day. And I'm not saying that jokingly, like that is a huge demographic now. They could nail that. I kind of can't see how they could lose. Yeah. Barring like production issues. Now, I, I'm a little, I guess, less like this is the apocalypse for desktop Linux than you. And like, you know, it should be in theory an opportunity, right? If Apple trailblazes the path, other vendors who focus on Linux ought to be able to capitalize on that. Right. And maybe they produce an ARM-powered system of their own, or maybe a RISC-powered system or an open power PC system. The, the, the scary part to me is, you know, Apple's going to keep that, that chip super proprietary. So does Apple have some kind of we're a trillion dollar company magic that no one can hit the performance and the battery life? Yeah, I think it's called PI Semiconductor. <laughs> hey, guys. Yeah. But like, let, let me let me put on my Mr. Monopoly hat. It, if Apple makes a better product, they deserve to win, right? Like that's if surfaces were good and didn't like light your backpack on fire. That is a thing that happened. They you could look it up. Ask Paul Thorat. Then they would, you know, WSL. I yeah. see. I actually think the bigger risk to desktop Linux is WSL. I gotta tell you. Well, that's part of it too, isn't it? It's, it's pressures coming from a couple of directions. Yeah, you're right. I guess my concern is essentially they're going to make a good product, right? Which is like what they exist to do. So. I mean, you could have both. I mean, how many HomePods do you have? Four. You need a MacBook. But I haven't bought one for a long time. You know, it's like I, I'm, I've got, I'm HomePod settled now. Chris, n- no one has bought one for a long time. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> you're right, you're right. That's good. That's good thinking. 
now I have to just kind of move forward and I'll start doing the research. I'd love any suggestions people might have, you know, nothing I'm going to be buying right away, but something towards the end of the year. Let me know at Chris Lass on Twitter. But speaking of bacon, we have a book recommendation, People Powered. Yeah, so I had a John O'Bacon on the M. Dominic Show, or Mike Dominic Show, a show whose name I keep changing every week because I forget. <laughs> uh, we talked about building communities, communitizing communities, and uh, his book, People Powered, is great. It's actually given me a lot of insight into why I used to get yelled at on the Ubuntu forums all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a good book. I bought it, uh, boy, I almost bought not quite a year ago, but just under a year, just under a year ago I got it. And uh, I know they're also doing like live reads now. Yeah, there's a book club. Yeah, there's, yeah, okay. Yeah, and they're, yeah, it's like live streamed and all of that. So check that out. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And, you know, you should toss a link in there to that episode of uh, the uh, M. Dominic show or Michael Dominic show or Automator, whatever you want. But the Jar Jar Binks Hour of Power. Why didn't you double down on that? Because I live in Florida. The Mickey Mouse ninjas would just come out of the ceiling tile. You're right. They would just show up at your house. Excuse me, sir. <laughs> All right. Well, if you think of it, toss a link in the show notes so people can hear that, too, because that's pretty great. And, you know, the great thing about Jono, he's a podcaster, so you know he's going to have pretty good audio for the interview, generally. Excellent audio. <laughs> yeah. Also, you can find a Cloud Guru on social media. It's just slash a Cloud Guru at YouTube dot com twitter.com or facebook.com just a slash a cloud guru and you can find them there don't forget about our membership coderqa.co and that coder quarterly damn i almost got it will be out soon and we have uh, topics already a brewing for that mr dominic is there anything you want to plug before we get out of here uh, follow me on Twitter at Dubonuko, and if you need any sort of Python development done, I have a teeny bit of bandwidth. There you go. I met Ruby, not Python, sorry. All right, Ruby Development, hit him up on the Twitters. Yep. He'll be in there. He'll be solving your problems. I'm at Chris Lass on the Twitters. There's the Coder Radio podcast on there at Coder Radio Show and at Jupiter Signal. But links to everything we talked about, the, the easy way, the easy button, coder.show slash 380. Thanks for joining us. See you right back here next week.